We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash hack it out. Just go to Indeed.com slash hack it out right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash hack it out. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So it's Hack It Out Golf Podcast time. Myself, Mark Crossford, Lou Stagner, Greg Chalmers with you. We're talking chipping. We're going to share with you some good practical ideas to help you with your chipping. I know lots of people listening to this pod, and I was one of you and still am fighting it. It's it's a part of the game that lots of golfers, certainly when they've been playing a certain amount of time, do show some kind of holes in. They might not have when they were younger. So let's share with you some practical advice on how you can get out there and can get a grip of those short, tricky little chip shots. Lou and Greg, welcome. Um, Greg, is your chipping as good as your putting? Chipping's pretty good, mate. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoy yeah. it. I have a, you, I've had a good, uh, good run with the short game stuff. So yes, it, it, I do okay there. Yeah, I, I would have guessed that. And we'll talk about that more. Lou, you're chipping in part of your game. Are you a solid chipper? Are you an edgy chipper? What's your feelings with short shots? Uh, I've always, that was, that's, that's the only strength I have in my game is short game and putting. That's it. Um, Nowhere near Greg's level, obviously, but um, it's the only thing that was sort of keeping me uh, in the game, but uh, no, I wish I could uh, uh, chip it like Greg because Greg being very modest, he's very, very good short game. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But you're chipping as an amateur golfer. You would say you're happy. You're not over a chip thinking this could go wrong. You're over a chip thinking I'm going to land it there. Yeah. You know, my, my strokes gained, I'm, I'm right around, um, right around break even, uh, compared to a scratch player with, uh, with my short game. So with, with my chipping uh, around the green play. So uh, it's it's pretty decent, pretty solid. Yeah. So for me as chipping, chipping was always my strength growing up, chipping and putting really accuracy off the tee short, but chipping and putting, you know, I, I wanted it to be even going into that part of the game if I was playing against anyone, because I felt like I was always going to come through and, and win. Um, but what was interesting for me, and I think lots of people listening to this pod, as soon as I stopped practicing and not really playing, you know, certainly not play, we play with cameras, so it's not really playing as such. You know, when I got to my thirties, mid thirties, I kind of just, my chipping started to become edgy. Like I would, didn't want chips. Um, I'm someone who generally it's like 10 to 16 greens in regulation. I never really need to chip that much. Often I could go a whole round and not really hit a chip, putt from off the green, hit a bunker, which I'm absolutely fine with and enjoy. Um, so I could kind of get away with it, but it's really started to get me down. And then during the lockdowns we had in the UK over the COVID times, I just thought it's just stupid. I used to be, my strongest part of my game or joint strongest, I would say. 
And I, I really worked in it and I've kind of turned it around back to somewhere where I used to have. But I do feel that if I stop practicing it, it would deteriorate really quickly where something like my approach play and my tee shots, I don't really need to practice them. They don't really fluctuate. I can just they, they've been the same as a kid to what they are now. Where chipping, I definitely saw a big drop. And as a golf coach, it's really interesting. The amount of students I get who have been decent to average chippers and they kind of hit middle-aged golf, you know, where... You have families, you play once every two weeks, you don't get a chance to practice, you go to the range, hit a few balls and you're chipping off mats, which doesn't really do much sometimes. Um, and they get proper flinchy with their chips. Do you see that with some of your students, Greg, now? Do you get some of the, oh, you know, the guys and mate. girls? Who, yeah. Yeah, and even even not to the, to, you know, the sad degree where I have to, you know, get a chipper or something like that. that hey, you know, I, I, don't <laughs> you start down that road. But, so. yeah, yeah. That's fine. I've got a story about that. Actually, I'll tell you here in a minute, but I, um, I teach at a place that has very firm, fast, zoysia, tight ish grass, oh, yeah, particularly yeah. in the winter. Yeah. And, and it was chipper town. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it really does stress a lot of the people that I, I teach. I can tell you that, you know, even though I would say it's been a strength in my game, I'm similar to what you're saying. If you don't do it, I do get edgy around if I haven't practiced it enough or for a while. So it's definitely something as a coach I have to be aware of that you don't just fall out of a tree and practice a little bit and expect it to be okay. Um, Because there's so much touch and feel and things going on. Um, I did, I think one of the first things, you know, talks about game improvement is just, I'm trying to tell people, just shelve your ego a little bit. Like, they may not have that sexy shot over the bunker. So chip it over there 30 feet away and get out of there, two putt and get out of there. Or I tried to implore someone to buy one of your chippers. You know, the, yeah. it's a Cleveland one you've spoken of in the past. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get it on the green and, and let's, let's just try and fall in love with shooting a lower score, not, um, not hitting the sexiest shot one time out of 100. 100%. And there's obviously a lot of people in that same boat because obviously I've got a chipper in my bag, which lots of people talk about, and I'm not meant to have a chipper in my bag. And I still get comments of people saying, oh, you call yourself a pro and you hit a chipper. Yeah, well, because I'm trying to shoot the lowest score. That's why I don't call myself right. a pro because what club I pull, it's relative to what I'm trying to shoot, um, which is an interesting fundamental breakdown in communication, I always think, when those conversations happen. Um, but the amount of people who have reached out to me saying, oh, like, I'm so pleased to see you're having a chipper. I struggled with my chipping. I didn't really know I was meant to have one of these, or even if I was really allowed one. And people take the mic, but see you using one. Um, and there was no intention with anything when I did any of the chipper stuff I did. It literally was a club. I got it during the winter, and in the UK, you're chipping off mud basically in Mud Island right. here in the winter. Um, and I never forget it was caught on camera. I've posted it a few times. We just put it in the stupidest lie. Me and the guy I was filming with, Matt Lockie, people know from my videos. Um, and we both hit it was like uh this would have been a shot with any other club you would have said to camera i might duff this this is duffy this is tricky because you're just you know, explaining to the camera why something silly is gonna happen um and we hit these shots was like that was the easiest we just kept putting it in silly lies and it just wasn't tough um so i do think it's there's a lot of people who who do share the feelings that, and sometimes you're a bit scared to admit they're wobbly with their chipping and i think you need to one of the first stages or the first question i've got for you both is how to improve and one of the first stages that i when i started to wobble at chipping the first thing I did is accepted I was wobbling at chipping. I didn't try to like hide it, ignore it, ego it. 
I accepted I was struggling at chipping. So then what happened is my practice had to change, which it did over COVID because I had more time. And then on the course, my objectives totally started to change. Right. So I, you know, I would do things like chip to different parts of the greens. I've just got a helicopter landing on my helicopter pad out here. If you can hear that, I don't know if you're hearing that on my mic. Is that your transport um, to go to the beach? That, yeah, because I'm going to the beach <laughs> in the next set. I'll be there in two minutes, guys. Uh, <laughs> Um, so it, lots of people ignore that they've got a problem. Just get the 60 degree out, still try to hit the same shot. And it's just, it's, if you want to improve, if you're someone who's struggling with chipping, you do need to accept it. And from the stats I've seen, it'd be interesting. You might not be able to answer this off the, off the bat, Lou, but there's some patterns of the worst handicaps you get tend to go more for lofted clubs where, when you look at better players on, um, you know, things like shot scope and Lou with Arcos, I definitely see a more mixed range of wedges being used from better players. The, the desire to pick the lofted club for people is, I find that a little scary at times. Unless you're really good with it, keep using it. Do you see similar patterns, Lou, or have you not looked in that in that way? Oh, no, I've, I've looked at that in depth. Um, and the, 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 the stock club that so many play, people go to is their 60 degree wedge. Um, scary, isn't it? And, and mm. they really do. And I, I looked at this and got pretty granular with this. And I looked at it by how much green they had to work with. So how short-sighted were they? And even when they had a lot of green to work with, they have a you know 20 yard shot. They have two yards of rough and 18 yards of green. They're grabbing the 60, right? They're, they're, they're flopping the 60 up there. Yeah. And uh, when I, when I did some really deep dives on it, it was fascinating because you know, mid high handicap players, you know, players that are, you know, not low single digit players. Um, I'll call it eight or nine or above. I don't have it in front of me. That cutoff was somewhere around there. They, they should take the 60 degree pretty much out of the bag for the most part. Um, they are better off in those situations using just a pitching wedge with you. A pitching wedge can have what 12 to 14 degrees left loft, less loft yeah. than your yeah. 60, depending on, you know, what club you have. You're better off, even when you're short-sighted, you're better off using that compared to a 60, which was surprising when I looked at the data. I didn't think it was going to be that much of an impact, but a 60 degree around the green for so many players um, is probably not the best choice. And it's yeah. certainly not the best choice when you know you have the ability to get the ball on the ground um, a little bit quicker and you decide to you know, use a 60. So I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan of, of hitting the right club for the shot and, and it's not always a 60. That's for sure. Yeah. And that's great. I mean, and again, how to improve if you are wobbling with your chip in my first point, and that kind of backs it up with some data as well, is just, you've got to accept you've got a problem. You know, it's like saying, I'm going to hit a free wood from a ground from 250 out where you've never hit a free wood from the ground that's gone higher than ankle height and further than 70 yards. Why would you keep doing it? You basically, it's so obvious, I think, the problem back at 250 that people do just hit a six iron or they hit their hybrid. They don't try and hit a free wood because you say, why don't you hit your free wood? And they say, just can't hit it. Oh, okay, that's cool. But when it comes around the green, people just take on some of the stuff. They give, take me the, on give me the 72 degree wedge. Yeah, Ooh, yeah, or get a sixty, so, slap it yeah. open, and just go at that pin. I think. Well, even if you go at that pin, it ain't stopping. So why don't you? Best case scenario, that pin is like fifteen foot away. If you go over there, you're probably worst case scenario twenty foot away. Should we go twenty foot, no bunker and duff, or should we go fifteen foot where you're not going to roll the part? 
and bring all the trouble into play as well. So, so I recently did um, a study uh, with Arcos data, Arcos players, and it, this is the first time I haven't put anything out there on Twitter about it yet. I haven't talked about it anywhere. It's the first time I'm talking about it publicly. And I started and I looked at five handicapped players. I'm going to quiz you guys on this to see how you do. And they needed to play at least 30 rounds in a season. So I, I found a five handicap that played 30 rounds and I only looked at that season of data. And then I looked at their per round standard deviation for total strokes gain. So that standard deviation just means how much variance they have. So somebody that doesn't have a lot of variance, they're shooting like 77. Every time they play, they shoot 77. And somebody that has a lot of variance, they shoot 85 today, they shoot 72 tomorrow. They shoot, they, so they're all over the board. Their scores are really wild, but they're all five handicaps. Um, and I wanted to know the players that were the most consistent. So they didn't have a lot of variance. They kind of shot the same 77, 78, 79, every time they teed it up. I wanted to see what part of the game had the strongest relationship to being a low variance player. So for each of those players, I then looked at what was their strokes gain number with putting around the green approach and off the tee. And I wanted to find the one that had the strongest relationship to them being a low variance player, meaning their scores were pretty tight. What part of the game do you think had the strongest relationship to being a low variance player? Well, this is okay. a chipping pod, so I'd say it was chipping. Yeah, yeah there's, there's no <laughs> See, the off, no off I... position in the genius switch there. Mr. <laughs> yeah, <Simon>. exactly. <laughs> the other thing that's interesting as well with that is that if I if this wasn't a chipping pod, so I would have said chipping because there's a chipping pod as well. But as just my uh, as working with people for a long time, the, the general ones you find who don't who are lower variants, so they tend to just shoot at you know around their number more more often they just don't make many mistakes they're boring they don't lose many balls they didn't have many penalty shots they don't particularly hit loads of greens and then they can get it down quicker um so i wouldn't have been able to answer that question before this being a chipping pod personally i would have said just you know as eyeballing it as someone who sees people i would have said you know someone who just makes less mistakes then we have to start going through and defining what mistakes are right i would i would have thought for sure, it would have been off the tee. Yeah, because they're generally short. The people who don't make many mistakes, the people who are generally, my experience is like, you get the guys who have plenty of speed and they can go like low, shoot level par, but they shoot a million over as well because they're just not able to keep it on the planet enough. And then you get mm. the middle-aged people who often guys who I teach and they just, you know, they're like 220 off the tee, 200, 190, not in any trouble, never really lose a ball. And then you get near the green and they're just, they're not, they're just bumbling it up there and holding a few putts. So that's the general cliche pattern I would see, if you like. I, I thought it would be people hit the driver well, keep it in play and, and gain strokes with the driver all the time. I, I would have thought it would have been that subset of players but shockingly, that had the least predictive power um, wow. to be a determinant if you were a low variance player. Of all, yeah. every other skill, approach around the green putting is more of a determining factor if you're going to be a low variance player. Driver off the tee, least predictive, yeah. which was, I, I was, I, I double checked the numbers, so triple check them. Um, I was really surprised by that. I thought it would have been driven by driver for low variance, but it's not. It's short game. Yeah, yeah. Didn't even need the numbers, guys. I knew it all along. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's why you play hey, on tour. <laughs> you hey, literally gotta... just looked at your notes and went, this is a chipping <laughs> hole. Chip in. Yeah. <laughs> I got a question for, for both of you. Do you think, I, I've been quite amazed, uh, you know, when I'm teaching people at the, I guess the lack of ability to read lies when they're chipping, to look at what there's in front of them oh, or down, what the ball's sitting 100%. on. 100%. And then, you know, you talk about they're, they're wanting to pull out a lob wedge. And I'm like, dude, I'd be hitting a three wood off, like cutting this. This is such yeah. a terrible lie into the grain, muddy something. They're like, oh, I was just going to flip a lob wedge up there. I'm like, well, you'll be doing that three more times before you get on the grain. So generalize, yeah, gem, generalize pattern when you put balls in lies for when you work with students is they are always predicting much higher than I, I look at it and just think just there, just run it round quite simple they're like going land at 10 foot it's going to stop right and i just yeah. said well you could play it that way but it's so high risk playing it that way that i don't see you know unless you love risk that's crazy so yeah totally reading lies understanding but they always they pitch way higher than their ability is the general path yeah, i'm always I, bringing I'm them back definitely down. I'm i wouldn't to encourage- do that i wouldn't yeah. do that I I'm trying to encourage it. people to, okay, hit one shot with that lob wedge and then pull the pitching wedge out or a seven iron or something else 100%. and just run on the ground and just see which one over time is like, huh, this one's a little more fun. I'm going to shoot a lower score with this shot. Um, it doesn't look as pretty to your eye, but the goal is to shoot a low score. Um, so the general pattern with people who are struggling with their chipping, if you start measuring with launch monitors and watching them hit shots, is that you put them on a really nice light, not too tight, not too chunky, um, nothing in front of them, really basic, like pick a landing spot. You'll get nearly a thousand revs difference in spin through quality of strike or lack of thousand revs like some mm. people are working on tolerant tighter tolerances with driver than they are with their mm. with their wedges um they'll get variations in ball speeds and launches huge from and we're talking like almost like a matte perfect line i think well that variation's too high to start from then you start putting on the variations of lies uphill downhill side hill rough no rough bare mm. lies over bunkers right. where they're wobbling the variations just get huge. So if you're struggling, someone like me struggled with their chipping, the first thing I did is I took, I took the target away and I took landing spot away. So I took all the anxiety away and I just put myself and I do it with students. I put them on lies and I get my launch monitor and we devise some windows that we want the ball to start going through consistently. And we might change their technique. People tend to side lean too much. So trail shoulder lower than left uh, lead shoulder. And they dig early is a common pattern you see, but there's others you don't. Um, And we just get some kind of consistency in launch angle, ball speed and spin through whatever techniques, no targets, you know, literally I don't even care how far you're hitting that. Because the first thing that goes when you're struggling with chipping is imagination. When my chipping went, and I see it with students over time and time again, how do you see this shot? They don't see it. I can't see anything. Right. They're so petrified of what's happening immediately in front of them. When they look down, am I going to chunk it? Am I going to fin it? Am I going to get it in that bunker? They don't see, and you speak to a good chipper. If I get Greg Chalmers on a course and say, Greg, where do you see this? You'll go, well, it's about five foot left. and land it just short of that raise, and then it'll just rise and break down. You're seeing all this imagination. I remember seeing that as a kid. If you'd asked me as a kid when I was chipping, I wasn't even thinking of strike. I'd have told you the plan and how it all plays out. But when the chipping went, my imagination was zero because I'm just literally wetting my pants that I don't make myself look like an idiot with strike. So getting strike back 
on a neutral land with any kind of consistency is stage one to improving. Because then once you've got some consistency, you can take that to a situation and start bringing imagination in. Because obviously, if you get a good window of launch, a good window of spin and a good window of ball speed, you're going to land it on a spot. If you can land it on a spot, you can then start choosing spots. The reason so many people struggle with their chipping, you start talking landing spots and it blows their head off is because they think, well, my landing spot is not that bunker. Anywhere else is good, you know. Then right. you, and then you can't you can't reverse it that way. You have to go back so much to the start. So if you are someone who's struggling with your chipping, get yourself on a really good lie and just get a consistent feel of strike on that groove on that face and some kind of consistent look of a ball flight any distance, five yards, 10 yards, two yards, 15 yards, don't care. You can mix up the yards, then take that to situation. And what I found with students is it really allowed them to open their mind and learn more because when you put them in situations, it doesn't matter what you say, they duff one in the bunker and they just get flustered and all technique goes out the window and they lose their heads and they fin one over the back and they're apologizing to the other person practicing. And it's like, we're not focusing on anything I've said now. You're like so scared of the surroundings that you can't focus on what you need to do down there. So I want to imagination back is good. If you can get that strike to some standard, basically. One of the things that I did with my chipping, I did this a long time ago and I still use this today. And uh, Greg, it does not, it does not uh, use a laser beam and a foot pedal, um, which (laughs) you'll be happy about. Um, Titan pending. uh, Yeah. (laughs) I would have uh, the technology, the Dave Pell's (laughs) clock system, like the Dave for for Uh wedge play. I did the same thing for chipping um, and I would have two different swings, two length of back swings. And I went out and just tracked hundreds and hundreds of shots with different clubs. So I'd put my 60 degree wedge in my hand and I'd go back the short distance and I'd go back the long distance and I'd see how much they'd carry. I'd see how much they would roll. I would do that with my 56. I'd do that with my gap, do it with my pitching wedge, nine iron, eight iron, seven iron. And I would just do that from fairways, from rough lies, just to get an idea of how far, if with this length backswing, how far is it going to fly? How far is it going to roll out? And I would do it from, you know, obviously slope of the green is going to have an impact on that. But I did that with two different length backswings and, and I had a little chart, which you're probably not surprised by. And, and I would know, like <laughs> use the long swing with the seven iron and it's going to go 38 yards. And so when I would get myself into a spot where I had about that distance and there was, you know, room between me uh, and wherever the hole was where I could land it effectively. And, and uh, that's how I got really good at chipping was taking that approach. I know it's completely flies in the face of players that like it to be more feel-based. Um, and this is certainly not for everyone, but for me, it worked really well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, best practices for improving people's chipping. One thing I did, which was really interesting is I did a certain amount of block like Lou's talking about block practice now, is it? Lots of shots and measuring outcomes over time and definitely doing that is good. But one thing I found when I did lots of block practice is I started to not, soon as you had the one off chance on the course, I was still anxious. I couldn't get that block practice to translate back into anything when I have one go at it on the course and it matters because I want to make a par or I want to save a bogey or I want to chip and putt for a birdie or whatever. Um, so what I started to do is block practice, but with one ball, hit a shot, walk after it, go back, hit a shot, walk after it, go back, hit a shot, walk after it, put it in a slightly different light, go back. I started to do block practice with one ball just to try and make the one shot 
actually matter. The amount of students I see who are just hitting ball after ball after ball, you know, I'm doing my hours, I'm doing my X amount of shots to get better. And I think look, if you practice that way and it works, I would never stop you. Show me the results that working. Brilliant. I, I don't care how it works. I just want it to work. But I found with students more often than not, it was so much more about making it a situation base once they got their strike, you know, because that's where they were struggling. That's where they were struggling. You put them on a range mat and they got 50 balls and they hit 20 chips. Like most of them are good. You, you don't see the fins and fats come out. You go out on the course with them first chip, they flub it. And you just think, oh, where's that come from then? Because right. there's other things going on around them. So one thing I did is block practice isn't something that works for you where you just, you know, get a bag of balls and hit 100 chips and that's what sorts you out. Is try doing a version of block practice where you have one shot and it matters each time because you've got to walk after that ball. So if you fin it, it's a long way to go. And if you duff it, you feel a bit silly. Because people duff a chip, pull one next one across it, a good one. They just forget that duff. It's like it's, right. it doesn't count. Well, it does count. That counts because you're going to get one go on the course. Your practice, Greg, how do you practice your chipping now as someone trying to keep sharp, still competing? You said you still need to put some time to yeah, it. Are you I, uh, I, put 10 balls down and hit or do you hit one I ball? Do, I do probably you... 50, 50 balls just block and I do like a ladder drill where, you know, I, I'll take uh, – a lob wedge and I'll, I'll put out like three tees between if I have 30 feet of green to work with, I'll put three tees sort of one, five foot on one 15 foot on and one 20 feet on and basically try and land it next to those tees, but finish next to the hole. So that just ticks off three different ball flights with the same club. Love it. Yeah. Um, but then I'll, I'll, I'll whip out. Um, I do a 12, oh, well, it's about a 12 ball drill. So one chip from two yards off the edge of the green, uh, with the with a different club, yeah, every club in the bag all the way up to three wood. I stop at three wood uh, just to run through that for 30 feet. And then I'll try and grab a buddy and go have a chipping competition. And we play a game, me and another pro, or I'll grab anybody. I don't really care, to be honest. I just want to walk around and pick different lies and have a chipping competition. And we play um, tennis is one game we play, which is one person gets to serve, so they get two chips, and one person gets to receive, so they get one chip, and whoever's nearest wins the point. Um, no, and I like that game, you, yeah. Yeah, and then you run through the next game. He serves and you don't. So if you can win win against serve there, you're doing really well. Um, and we, or we come up with any other sort of, you know, myriad of games you can play. Just the goal is to move around, compete, and different lies and different and carry a couple of clubs and things like that. So honestly, about an yeah, hour of that and I'm good to go. You know, yeah, not enough people. And obviously, I know if you're not confident listening to this pod, Chipping, this is slightly more down the line. So you do need to just get your strike working, like to play the games that Greg are playing, which are brilliant. If you're duffing and finning it, they're not going to be any fun. So you do need to then do your block and find your strike. But there is not in the club golfer world, I would argue there is not enough time spent trying to beat a buddy. It's such on the putting green, around the chipping green. It's those hours and hours that you do as a junior that often are what really start to heighten those skills and heighten those imaginations. And each shot's a situation because I'm one up, I'm one down, I'm two It's down, usually more fun to do, Mark. That's the other thing. Yeah, and it is loads of You can go for hours, can't you? Yeah. So I, I definitely, I, I do the same with students. As soon as they've got some confidence when they're not going to feel silly, we create a game. I've got to chip it within 10 foot. You've got a 20 foot circle or whatever it is. Um, from this bunker shot, if you get it out, it's as good as me getting it within 20 foot or 10 foot or whatever it is. It's you, you, you handicap the player with you. If you're not the same standards and you can still have 
a lot of fun and what that does do is it does create some of those juices that are flowing through you when you're on the course and it's those juices that flow through you on the course that often paralyze people a little bit i think right um it's definitely a part of the game and loose stats there backed it up that so many amateurs who want to become a little bit more <laughs> less high variance in their game um well, speaking and, of stats we're going back down into the stat hole yeah, well, you need got to... more of you. We well, we can't talk about chipping with talk without talking about the Texas wedge because I think this is fascinating. Um, and I talked about this last week uh, on my spot on the Golf Channel. Uh, so did a whole bunch of analysis on uh, Arco's data and looking at players that putt or chip from the fairway when they have that uh, situation. And so <clears throat> when you are relatively close to the green so between five and 15 feet from the edge of the fairway mid to high handicap players absolutely need to take a putter they're going to score about a tenth of a shot better with a putter in that situation than they're going to score with trying to chip the ball and their worst putt is going to have an average proximity that's about three to five feet closer than their worst chip so their worst putt is absolutely better than their worst chip Uh, and their best putt is actually better than their best chip. So their best putt is going to have an average proximity that's about one to two feet closer than their best chip. Now it gets a little different for lower handicap players as you start to get down near scratch Uh, from longer distances, like 60 plus feet to the pin. um, They are kind of break even. They might even be a little bit better chipping from, from that distance. Um, Depends on the player. A lot of this player dependent. Uh, but inside of that distance, if a, a scratch player is less than 60 feet, they're going to be better off with the putter. Um, so lower handicap players have more options. So what happens when you get a little farther away from the green? So 15 to 25 feet of fairway, which 25 feet of fairway is a is a good amount of fairway to putt through. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so in that situation, when you're that far away, mid to high handicap players, they score an average of 0.15 to a quarter of a shot better with the putter in that situation compared to trying to chip the ball. Uh, And their worst putt is going to be about five to six feet closer than their worst chip. Um, And again, lower handicap players um, have a little bit, uh, they have more options. Lower handicap players are pretty break even both way, but mid to high handicap players, when you can get a putter in your hand around the green, um, get a putter in your hand. And the other thing I would tell you is, don't be afraid to practice that when you're in your practice area. So right, practice yeah. that. Te- don't wait till you get on the green and you have 15 feet of, of fairway to putt through. Give it a shot in your in your practice area and work on that because the stats support this through and through that you are going to be better off in that situation. So don't be afraid to mix that into your practice routine. Totally. I love that. And if you think about the stats you're quoting there, Lou, I would argue, and obviously we've got no data on this, but I would argue they are stats based on people not practicing putting from off the green. For How sure. many people listening yeah. to their pod, this pod now, yeah. put your hands up wherever you are and say, yeah, I put five balls down around a green and I chip and from different spots. So many people do that. I put two or three balls on a putting green. I hit six foot, 10 foot, big, long putts. I do that. How many of them practice from off the green? 
I don't reckon anyone does. Like, yeah, nobody. Hardly ever. Mm, start doing so, it. So those stats are yeah. without anyone working it into any part of their game. So no question. It's not yeah. even a fair fight, is it? Because they're practicing their chipping, probably. Certainly more are than um, practicing their long putting off the green. I reckon it would be 1% at best who are out there going, right, 10 foot off the green putt, 20 foot off the green putt, 5 foot off the green putt. What can I do? How does it work? Different grasses. So much. That's low hanging fruit right there, isn't it? That's a great point, Mark. Yeah, That's a really absolutely. good point. Greg, did you, uh, were you, because you're such a good putter, you have a great short game overall. Did you did you try to get the putter in your hand more when you had fairway to putt through or were you going to put a chipper? And I, I realize every situation no, is, is I, I, you know, unique. Yeah, I was just listening to Mark there and I was thinking to myself, I, I'm a three-wood or hybrid run I, I with a putting technique, putting grip. Um, I never really was, for some reason, my putter never really rolled very well it always seemed to bounce too much for me. And I don't know. I've got a lot of loft on my putter. I don't know why. It just didn't. It never. I never could get it to work. And I wasn't. I never really practiced it, to be honest, to, to Mark's point. But I would practice the three-wood. And, and I'll say this. If I didn't practice it, and I've gone to venues where I probably should have, I wouldn't use it because mm. I, I haven't done the work to give me confidence. If you're standing over a shot and you're like, oh, I don't know what's going to I don't know what I'm doing here. Okay, maybe pick. try to put a different club in your hand then and see if that feels more comfortable. So I, I definitely would have to put love into it to, to feel good about going out in the golf course. But, yeah, I was more of a three-wood with a putting technique, um, which has become popular, obviously, over the last you know, 20 sure. years, and that's been around for a long time, um, because I just knew I got really confident with how that was going to roll. Yeah, um, so here's a question for both of you. It doesn't matter who answers. I think this would be a helpful question for a lot of the listeners that that may not know or quite understand what this means so you hear a lot of people when they have chips or pitches around the green uh good players use the bounce you need to use the bounce um i've asked players what what they think that means and i don't think a lot of people understand what that means so one of you coaches do you want to explain that and and i know it might be tough to explain it without any visuals but i think it would be interesting for people to to hear what that means Okay, so if you think about your wedge, the front of your wedge has a leading edge. It has an edge which is relatively sharp. That sits above the back edge of the wedge. So if you imagine leaning your hand or forward of the head at the bottom, that presents that sharp edge of the front more to the turf, and it takes the droop down back of your wedge, it picks it up in the air. So that would be a case of not using the bounce. That, but that's something where you would dig your wedge into the ground possibly. So using the bounce is using that bit of the back of the wedge, which is lower than the front. So you see it on sand wedges and lob wedges and pitching wedges less, but you see it. Um, and letting that bit interact with the ground because it's rounded, it's not sharp. So what happens is the leading edge will get down near the ground rather than dig that rounded bit will start interacting with the ground. Hopefully as you pick the ball up as well as you start to hit the ball and that club will glide through, meaning that whatever speed you put in, you're going to take a bit of that speed and put it on the ball. So not duff it um, rather than if you apply that leading edge to the ground first, before you hit your chip, it's going to dig and that's where you get your chunks and that kind of stuff. The other thing as well is that people don't realize this, that the best chips in the world, the club hits the ground before the ball. No one hits the ball first, even in the best shots in the best. If you watch high-speed footage of shots being hit, the ground is being brushed and touched before the ball on the best strikes. And people don't realise this. So even though I feel like you hit the ball than ground, even on an iron shot, it feels like you hit the ball than ground. 
99% of the time, even on a full iron shot, you're actually interacting with the ground a little bit before you touch the ball. No, I, so I, that, I, I interact yeah. with the ground <laughs> very <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah. So basically the moral down. of this story is that if your interaction with the ground is poor, you're going to be doing it on every shot, even the good ones. Um, you're going to have a lot of crashes. And someone like, I think is Andrew Rice, a great coach, who I'm actually going to see over at Western Savannah. Lots of people have heard of Andrew Rice listening to this pod. If they haven't searched his name up, Andrew Rice Golf, he's got lots of great information. Think about a plane coming into land, basically using the bounces, trying to get that wedge to land like a plane, really soft on the runway, glide along the runway. And you can imagine then it even taking off after all the passengers have got off. You know, it then takes off again. That's how your wedge wants to interact with the ground. Lots of planes um, or people's wedges are interacting in a crashing formation. They're just landing nose, nose down first. into the runway. Yeah, nose, and it yeah. just, in less contact, is absolutely that's Lou. perfect. Yeah, that's Lou. Greg, it's not, so, obviously not because your wedge plays quite good. Yeah, um, uh, then you're not using the bounce. So hopefully that helps people understand a little bit what that means. So, Greg, as a tour player, you play a lot of different courses, a lot of different conditions, a lot of different parts of the country. Do you have... Do you rotate wedges with different amounts of bounce depending on the turf conditions you're going to face that week? Or do you always just keep the same wedges, same bounce? No, I, I change. I change uh, my lob wedge. I have I have one that uh, 58 degrees with 12 to 14 degrees of bounce. Uh, I have a, sort of a couple of options there. And I'll whip that in for Bermuda grass, muddy, wet weeks, and lots of sands in the bunker, lots of sand in the bunkers. Um, yeah. I'll kind of marry between, you know, because you don't always get what you want, right? So maybe the bunkers don't have much sand in them, but I want, I want it around the greens. I've kind of got to play that game a little bit and make sure I don't hit it in many bunkers or if I've got a lot of bounce, if there's not much sand in there. Um, and then vice versa. If I go down, like I'm heading down to Australia at the end of the year, uh, lots of tight lies, uh, things where we don't have much rough. Um, it's sometimes I'll go down to six on oh, my stock is about a six or eight degrees of bounce. Um, yeah. you know, got a little more dig to it, but yeah, definitely learning what lies, you know, would be, you know, bounce is your friend is what I, you know, I spoke to Bob Vokey about this. He said, you know, people, once they understand it, bounce is your friend, um, how to use it and when it's necessary to use it. Um, and I'll be honest, I probably early in my career, I was a lean the shaft forward back foot old school kind of guy, Yeah, we you know, were. I was. Yeah, yeah. And now I have the ability to do sort of, you know, a little bit of both, but I understand what happens if I lean that shaft forward, how much it can dig and how much trouble wait, you that, can get into. Wait, that's not what you're supposed to do. Hold on. Time out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On those muddy fairways so, in Wednesday night. Do you, like, yeah. do you, yeah. do you have um, your two, what your two uh, highest lofted wedges, do they have varying degrees of bounce? And will you Ooh. play a shot um, where let's say, you, you, you're out there and you're like, you know, this is a, a really good shot for my 60, but because of turf conditions, you might drop down to your 54 because it has less bounce and, and it makes more sense. Do you ever factor that in when you're hitting shots or? Yeah, I go, it's the other way though. My, my, my 54 has way more bounce. So way more bounce. I, okay. If, yeah. If I have my 58 degree has six or eight degrees of bounce and I need, I've got like a muddy wet thing or Bermuda grass or into the grain. And I want to really get a lot of bounce into that shot. Cause it makes me feel safe. It makes me feel like it's not going to dig. I'll go yeah. down to my 54 and just, and, and work around that, but I've got to practice that, but yes, I'll definitely do that. Cause that has 14 degrees of bounce and less loft. So do, you, it, do either of you, uh, you know, use that same concept with the players you teach? Do you, do you tell them to think about those things or is that just too advanced and, and just, you know, try to get them? No, no, the club on the ball? I, 
you, you, I mean, it's a mixture of both, but you definitely start trying to get them to understand pretty quick at the bottom, the dynamics of different lofts, what it will do and how it interacts with the ground, because you're always trying, even though you're not teaching many people who aren't actively playing. Does that make sense? So you need to be able to give them band-aids that like, just get this, that this shot's working, just going to use it as much as possible. So you're constantly trying to say rebuild if someone's really struggling, but at the same time, you still got to send them on their way with something they can actually take to the course. And sometimes it is like, use your 52, which has a chunky of sole, or even your pitching wedge that comes with your chunky wedges, because that's got basically loads of sole on the bottom and just twist some loft on it. Because remember, bounce is dynamic you can add and take it off subject to if you twist loft on or twist loft off. So if you move the handle forward, move the handle back. So you go, if you use your nine iron and you twist it a little open to add loft and aim up the left, look, that's a repeatable shot. And then they think, Oh, can I do that with my 52? Or can I do that with my 54? Can I do that with my 60? Yeah. See, we're mm -hmm. learning. You can do it with anything. You're just given, you're constantly trying to give players tools and let them use it. You're just constantly handing out spanners and, knives and nails it's not about handing out the fix you're going here's a tool go and play with it here's another tool go and play with it because one thing that greg will have if you went and played with greg and i haven't but i'm sure he's got it and i know he has because of the sound he plays at he's just got hundreds of tools he's just got situation-based tools that he'll pull out and for often more often than not they're so much simpler tools than people think they should be playing yeah, like we said at the start true. they're going for the really specialized hacksaw where Greg's just getting out a little Stanley knife and making a little cut and going, I'm just going to do that because that's a better option because, you know, my chances from five foot or eight foot or 10 foot are better than my one off chip to two foot that's going to come off. And again, mm. he'll apply that to situations, I'm sure. So I always... have one more question to, to, to uh, this is for me specifically to help out my game. I, I had last time I played, I had a couple of greens where I missed and the ball was off the green. And it was one of those lies where the grass is real fluffy in a couple yeah. of spots and the, and the ball is sitting way perched up on top of the grass. And if I were to put my club down behind the grass, I mean, it almost, it might almost go underneath the grass. Yeah. It's just perched up so high. How do you play those? What do you, what do you do differently in those? Cause I, I think it's, it's one where I will, I will often end up, you know, hitting the very top of the face on those more often than I won't. And as you know, that's not a, that's not a, what you really want to have happen. What do you do differently? What do you think about on those? Uh, you want me Greg, to go first? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah they're I, tough I go, shots. Yeah. I go nine iron um, and I go yeah, shallow nine iron or pitching wedge and I go shallow. I feel like I'm hitting a draw chip, but the face is open. Um, mm. So it's just kind of shallow around and around. Um, and it just get, it's just so much bounce and not much loft and and the less loft, key is controlling right. the yes sorry less loft the key is controlling the tempo right it's a fast hands fast club heads are the killer of that shot particularly with that little amount of loft so it's having the ability to you know given that I'm imagining it's the grain is growing in the good direction for you you know so you don't have to have much speed then yeah that's kind of the world I would go to. It definitely gets more and more complicated when you get into reading lies like that. Um, it's, but the more it, loft you have on that, the more oblique hit you get, Lou, the more chance you've got of it getting up to the top of the club, where if you give it a rebounded face, like if you were able to hybrid putt it, which you wouldn't really, it would have you because there'd be too much grass around it. It doesn't matter if you're out in the middle or the bottom or the top on that size of shot, it's going to, you know, it's going to be relatively responsive. So it's about trying to make it more rebound than oblique. 
because the chances are you're going to get underneath it. The other thing I do with students with that shot is they'll whinge about it two hours later, hour later, two hours later. And I say to them, that's a tough shot. So let's lower our expectations a bit on that shot. If you keep beating yourself up about that one, we're going nowhere. Like, because that, that's like we said at the start, and Greg was saying there, their expectations are the same. Right, no, it's a hard shot. You can't, if you've got the expectations are the same, then you're just going to be upset. So mm. managing those feelings as you're playing around different lies is a part of getting better to learn them, learn from those different lies, and in turn, managing the shot you play because as soon as you realize it's a tougher shot people are more um into taking a different club because they think it's actually it's actually shot. even harder if you have to get it up and up in the air quickly like go over a bunker or something yeah, like that. Like, really it's actually hard, harder because yeah. yeah you're you're, you're stuck in that world perfect. of yes yes it's actually hard you've got to respect that, the how club difficult stuff it is. and hope you don't go underneath it stuff mm-hmm. isn't it mm-hmm. it's kind of you know there's always going to be an element of, yeah Absolutely. There you go. Good stuff. Improving your chipping. Definitely use a few more clubs mid to lower handicaps, Lou. I think the data is showing. Get your putter in hand for the same player specific is a, is a good option as always. Don't be afraid of a chipper. Uh, definitely learning different lies from Greg there and doing the games with friends when you're practicing is just a fantastic way uh, of moving that chipping along. And for me, really, it's just trying to get on a neutral environment, take all the targets away and just get some level of consistent strike and then apply that back to the different lies and the situations is a great way of building that confidence back. So when you do fin and duff one, it's not going in a bunker, it's not running over the green, it's not hitting the other person on the chip and green. Get yourself in a neutral space. I used to just do it like in a field, basically, with people, you know, where there's nothing, just the practice area bit where there's no targets just to get that strike going. Um, there is light at the end of the tunnel as long as you admit you've got a problem. That's the other thing as well. So many chippers just kind of go, mm, bit of a funny lie or I was unlucky then. Mm, you just got to admit maybe you've got the wibbles and the wobbles and try and deal with it. It's One last point as well I just want to make before we finish quickly is as well, really good tip is sort out some um, pros who specialize a bit more in chipping. You know, there's a lots of great teachers out there, but they're swing based and it comes to chipping and they'll just kind of give you basic ideas. There are some really good coaches out there who commit to chipping and Greg, who teaches every part of the game. He's certainly a putting centric coach, I would argue. Greg, is that fair to I, say? I, I'm trying to get more into just teaching chipping and putting, to be honest, Mark. Yeah. And so take a look at like of... some people. Yeah. People like think of, like Parker McLaughlin, the short game chef. I follow him on Instagram. There's lots yeah. of people out there, obviously, if, once you start searching for it. So, yeah, get after it. So if you are asking for your coach, you know, do say, look, I struggle with chipping. Do you specialize in chipping? Do you, you know, have you done any work with chipping I can look at? So videos and Instagram posts, those kind of things. Because there will be some coaches who chipping lessons would really turn them on. That's what they want. And they're the ones you want to go and find if you're struggling with that chipping. Thanks, guys, as always. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, let us know how we're doing in those stars down below or on our social channels. And we'll catch you in the next podcast.